They had had no wars. They had had no kings and no priests and no aristocracies. They were sisters, and as they grew, they grew together, not by competition, but by united action. Imagining another world in which women lead and create a different reality, free from the conventional patriarchal model of power is nothing new. The opening quote is from Charlotte Perkins Gilman's 1915 sci-fi novella titled Her Land, in which she imagined a society where men have disappeared and women evolved to asexually reproduce. Over generations, this remote realm that remained hidden from the rest of the world developed in its own time and space to reflect a society centered on matriarchal values of communal care, universal education, and living in harmony with nature. The narrator of the book's story is one of three male explorers who searched for months to find this place. After spending time there and learning more about this woman-centered society, he came to understand how starkly different it was from his home in early 20th century America. A century later, a utopian vision is satirically imagined in a comedy skit on the CBC's Baroness Von Sketch Show. The scene is the G4 summit in the year 2050 with a circle of world leaders who are all women. One female leader opens the meeting by saying, quote, This is the first world summit since the revolution where we ascended to power replacing our male counterparts. It's been a busy year. End quote. The women all chuckle and heartily agree. Next on the agenda is discussing major world issues like the economy, environment, social justice, and war. The group moves through each item quickly as there are no issues to report, with each giving replies like, all good here, no problems, yep, same here, and we're cool. When explaining the lack of conflict, one of the leaders explains, we just talk it out these days. While a land devoid of men or a world where only women lead may not be the answers to the challenges we face, it has become increasingly clear that a lack of representation of women and gender-diverse people in leadership positions will not prepare us for an increasingly complex world shaped by continual advances in technology, climate change, and global interdependence. The dominant power structures built upon patriarchy and that still lean heavily on traditionally masculine traits that favor aggression, competition, and dominance will not help us realize a more equitable and inclusive future. This episode of the Designing a Humane Future podcast explores feminine leadership and the kind of leadership models needed to navigate the challenges ahead. Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them, and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. This two-part episode examines the body of research on women, leadership, and systemic barriers that remain for women to reach parity with men. The aim is to find a working definition and understanding of how feminine leadership can help us tackle the looming issues of economic and social justice and climate change that lie ahead. 
It is important to understand that feminine, as discussed in this episode, is not defined as stereotypically female traits, nor as a binary, belonging to either women or men. I am also intentional in using the word feminine and not feminist, as this exploration is not rooted in a particular theory or ideology, though at the heart of this discussion is the clear need for an intersectional lens and a set of systems-based solutions. Feminine is discussed here to explore different ways of being that are inherent in each of us, and that when combined with masculine qualities allow us to be more balanced, integrated, and to move towards wholeheartedness in how we relate to ourselves and others. You will hear from stakeholders and emerging leaders engaged in the work of championing more inclusive and equitable leadership. I had the opportunity to talk with thought leaders from In Good Company, a partnership between YWCA Canada, Canadian Women's Foundation, Plan Canada, and Catalyst. I also spoke to the course lead from the Cody Institute's Feminist Leadership for Justice, Equity, and Ecology program, and to the executive director of Girls Inc. of York Region. Additionally, you will hear the voices of four emerging leaders. These are recent graduates from OCAD University's Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program. I had the privilege to work with them as part of their major research projects required to complete the program. Each woman brings her thought leadership and unique perspective gained through her in-depth research and lived experience. Here they introduce themselves and how their research topics intersect with women in leadership. My name is Stephanie Kwan, and I'm a foresight practitioner with the Canada Revenue Agency. As part of my master's, I conducted academic research on feminist visions of the future of women's work. It's also been recently published in the Journal of Future Studies. I conducted a systemic analysis of gender equality in the workplace to examine how our workplace, governance, social, and economic structures create systemic barriers that undervalue women's work. I use strategic foresight to understand how trends shaping the future of work could impact women and equity-deserving groups and explore how we can collectively envision and design feminist futures through scenarios. Larissa Barnes-Roberts, recent graduate of OCAD SFI program, and I'll be a service design lead with the BC government. So a lot of my graduate research centered around topics of equity and decolonization. I'm very interested in gender and gender equity as well as power and implicit and explicit power dynamics. For my final graduate research project, I focused on the Canadian sports system and understanding why maltreatment and abuse persist within the high-level sports context. So I took a broad systems view looking at sports all the way from the coach-athlete relationship to the historical events which have shaped the current sports system. It's Patricia. My research focused on asking the question, how might we utilize digital games to support science, technology, engineering, and math education, otherwise known as STEM, for young women in Canada? And the inspiration for this research came from engaging with youth across the province in gaming settings, noticing that fewer girls were involved in initiatives related to online gaming spaces. So recognizing that digital games are one of the most popular activities for youth today, I encountered a research study that connected young women who participate in digital games as three times more likely to pursue a career in STEM. With that being said, I started wondering if it was truly less girls who engaged in these gaming environments, or if there were other barriers in the way of engagement, and why. My name is Angie Fleming, and data humanizing is my role for at least a decade combining data design and dialogue to really understand 
the humans, their emotions, and build empathy through the gathering of data. So my research topic was really looking at developing my capacities as a systems thinker while building my body literacy as a person who menstruates, so someone who identifies as female in a woman's body. So in order to do that, the prerequisite I found was to actually develop my research methodology, epistemology, ontology from a feminist perspective, recognizing that the dominant forms of research and the methodologies and epistemologies all came from a much more masculine that is assertive, competitive, authoritative, objective, and believes that data, research, context might not be as important or doesn't value lived experience. All the data available points to the same conclusion. Though there are more women earning college degrees and a more comparable number entering the workforce, women are not reaching mid-level and top-level leadership positions at the same rate as men. The numbers are even worse for women of color, who are disproportionately underrepresented at all levels of management and leadership. According to a 2021 LeanIn.org McKenzie report, 75% of the C-suite positions in the U.S. are filled by men, 62% by white men, while 24% are held by women and only 4% are women of color. The numbers look similar in Canada. Just 4% of Canada's largest publicly traded companies have a woman CEO. Black women, Indigenous women, women with disabilities, and LGBTQ2S women each hold less than 1% of women-held senior leadership and pipeline positions. In terms of representation in government, Canada ranks 59th in gender equality behind countries including Rwanda, Ecuador, and Armenia. Decades of research and thousands of studies have examined why this huge gap remains. Terms like broken rung and sticky floor have been coined to describe the difficulty women face moving up from entry level to managerial positions and into leadership tracks within organizations. The metaphor of the glass ceiling was first used in 1978 to name the invisible yet very present barriers that were observed then and still exist for women to reach upper levels of leadership. Building from this, other experts have used terms like glass escalator to describe women's frustration watching male counterparts rise more quickly and easily through the ranks that remain out of reach for them, and glass cliff to name the trend of women being placed in CEO positions of already failing companies, in essence handing them the helm of an already sinking ship. Scholars Alice Eagley and Linda Carley argue that the metaphor of a labyrinth is more fitting, pointing to the complex maze and different sets of barriers each woman must navigate and that does not allow them to clear an easier path for other women to follow. Others point to the glass slipper problem, where women who fall outside conventional gender roles can never fit rigid, unobtainable expectations set for them. common thread through much of the research is the need for a culture change in workplaces and in broader society, which is mirrored at work. For women to reach more and better leadership positions, they need to be valued and recognized for their contributions, which may look different than their male colleagues. This needed shift in culture is contrasted by the messaging over the last decade for women to lean in, 
to speak up, raise their hands more often in meetings to be seen and better positioned for leadership positions. Critics of leaning in point to the fact that it continues to put the onus on women to change their behaviors, focusing on personality traits, and conveniently ignores the systemic barriers at play. I spoke with Steph Jeremy and Karen Campbell from Inca Company about how this initiative is working at a systems level to advance gender equality in the corporate sector and beyond. Hi, I'm Karen Campbell. I'm Director of Community Initiatives and Policy at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Hi, everyone. My name is Steph Jeremy, and I'm the In Good Company Project Director with YWCA Canada. In Good Company is an RBC-funded collaborative project between YWCA Canada, Canadian Women's Foundation, Clan International Canada, and Catalyst to create more equitable and accessible workplaces for women and gender-diverse folks in the corporate sector and beyond. More specifically, especially this year, we really want to work with small-medium enterprises across Canada. And we're doing, we kind of have a three-pronged approach of how we're hoping to create these equitable and accessible workplaces. So we're preparing women and gender-diverse people to be job-ready through training and capacity building. We're also hoping to build community awareness around changing attitudes and addressing barriers for women and young women, particularly around entering the workforce. And finally, we're also changing the attitudes of business leaders and decision-makers. So over the years, the RBC Foundation has funded each of our respective organizations to work with women and girls at different stages in their journey towards economic empowerment. So YWCA Canada and Canadian Women's Foundation really concentrate on preparing women and gender diverse people for the workforce. Plan International Canada works with girls and young women to provide leadership opportunities and that change within the corporate world is really needed to address the structural and systemic barriers that women and gender diverse people are facing in the world of work. You know, we can train as many women and gender diverse people as we want to work in white male dominated sectors or or provide leadership training and mentorship opportunities. But at the end of the day, women and gender diverse people, particularly those who are Indigenous, Black, racialized, living with disabilities, who come from less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds, who maybe don't speak perfect English or French, when they enter the workforce, we know that they're going to encounter discrimination that prevents them from staying or advancing within their chosen field. We came together to form In Good Company so that we could collectively address these issues head on. So one of the really, I think, key activities that we're working on is bringing together a community of business leaders in small and medium-sized enterprises in the tech and trade sectors. And the idea is that they'll come together to learn about the innovative and effective practices that they can be putting in place to support the recruitment and retention of these folks and support each other uh, working to make change first in their businesses and then sharing what they learn with their colleagues and expanding the circle. The pandemic has touched so many parts of our lives. This has included women and work. According to the LeanIn.org McKenzie report, women have made important gains in representation, especially in senior leadership. But this has taken a toll, leaving women significantly more burned out than men. Women have had to carry the brunt of the caretaking responsibilities at home, and this has extended into the workplace. They are doing more to support their team's well-being and to advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. 
COVID has also impacted girls in different ways. Girls Inc. of York Region is dedicated to empowering girls and young women. I spoke with the CEO to learn about Girls Inc. and how its work has responded to the pandemic and the needs of girls. My name is Barb Wallace, and I'm the Executive Director for Girls Inc. of York Region. Girls Inc. is an organization that is dedicated to inspiring all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Strong is to be strong both physically and mentally, to be resilient. Smart is to stay in school, study those hard subjects like STEM. And bold is to learn to stand up for yourself and for others who might not have a voice. Since COVID, there's been a huge switch from focusing on girls worrying about their friends, worrying about their social-emotional learning, to really focusing on their mental health. Girls are really struggling with their mental health right now. They had been possibly locked down with a parent who was struggling, who maybe wasn't working, who maybe suffered with some substance abuse issues and then couldn't get there or have as easy access to their substances. And the kids really suffered. The girls really struggled with this, not having access to their friends, not having social connections. And we're still seeing the negative effects of the lockdown on these girls. So we are focusing on supporting the girls with mental health check-ins. We have one-on-one counseling and as well doing referrals if there's more support needed. One of the glaring lessons of the pandemic has been the undervaluation of care work, which is overwhelmingly performed by women. From underpaid health workers to the added stress of women juggling working from home while caring for children and elderly family members, it has become clear that the essential work of care that keeps the economy afloat is under-recognized and undervalued. In Good Company stresses the importance of collective care and the work it does with companies that are committed to making their organizations more equitable, diverse, and places where people want to work. I like to share with folks that, you know, when we're working on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, a lot of the times we're working on just building better workplaces. And I think if we kind of look at it through a lens of we're trying to build, you know, workplaces of care where people feel good, where people kind of want to show up to work with all of their intersections, with all the stories that they walk through life with, then I feel like it's a little less intimidating than thinking that we're trying to create space for very specific groups of people. What we're really trying to do is make sure that everyone showing up in the workplace feels comfy and feels good showing up. I think we need to open up that conversation a little bit more. There's lots of practical things that they can do. And then in terms of that workplace culture, you know, really interrogating, is it inclusive and supportive? Are there common understandings of language and terms that are being thrown around? Do employees get away with using stereotypes or devaluing others? Looking at meetings, you know, who speaks, who doesn't? How can you change the way that you approach these things to welcome everybody's input? All with a view to having collective care at the center of how a business operates. 
As discussed, women are carrying out critical care work that is almost never captured in performance evaluations and other tools used in determining raises and promotions. Many point to this as one clear area where organizations can ensure women are seen and where their efforts are directly tied to pay and leadership opportunities. Stephanie discusses the need for workplaces to fully recognize and value the contributions of women in equity-deserving groups that came through in her research on women and the future of work. Many workplaces are designed by men for men and grossly neglect the needs of women. You see institutional biases woven into organizational policies, structures, and cultures, with many barriers stemming from hiring, retention, promotion, and leadership practices. At the leadership level, we see a lack of women and women of color in these decision-making roles. There are often invisible barriers that prevent women from being promoted. Some women are often judged as inferior leaders when they don't exhibit traditional masculine leadership qualities, such as being authoritative, competitive, and assertive. Our modern workplace has failed to measure and value the soft feminine traits of compassion, empathy, and supportiveness. Many workplace models are also created for the default male. That's the traditional ideal worker that is on duty 24-7. This sets up certain people for success and makes it more difficult for many women who often have care duties to take on leadership positions. There is still much work to be done to break free from ingrained notions of what women should be, both inside and outside of work. Research points to some of the deep-seated bias that remains, particularly for women in leadership. A German study found that when participants knew their answers were completely anonymous, they were more likely to respond that female leaders were less qualified than male leaders. Men were more likely to respond negatively about women leaders' qualifications when they were anonymous compared to non-anonymous surveys. While this is one study, it points to the need for further exploration of deeply held bias when people feel safe to answer without fear of repercussions. Research on the effectiveness of leaders using humor showed that male leaders are rated more highly for using jokes in their interactions with employees, while female leaders were rated far lower for using the exact same jokes. Other studies point to the impossible line women must walk between being seen as too aggressive on one hand or too agreeable on the other, of being difficult, bossy, emotional, weak, indecisive, of speaking up too much or not enough. Being a model of respectable femininity, a term from the Victorian era, of wearing the right clothing, saying the right thing, acting the right way as expected of a woman, is still very much at play in how women are perceived and evaluated. Wading through the body of research, you can't help thinking you're damned if you do and damned if you don't as a woman, particularly at work and when navigating being a female leader. So many women have experienced the unrealistic and shifting expectations of women in the workplace. I have seen the boys club where you have to act in certain ways to get face time with leaders and act in certain ways to get access to information and promotion opportunities. Leaders don't necessarily give everyone equal opportunity and often the opportunities are provided to those who have the loudest voice or those who speak up during the boardroom or those who ask for outsized promotions and pay increases. 
Some workplaces empower women to lean in, to speak up and be assertive instead of fixing the systemic issue. We really need to stop trying to fix the women by asking them to develop traditional masculine behaviors. Instead, leaders need to create inclusive spaces for all voices to be heard and to provide equal opportunity for everyone to actualize. So generally when I've encountered negative leadership, what comes to mind is leadership that's been more rigid or inflexible and much more focused on top-down hierarchical view of leadership. There wasn't a lot of trust or cooperation, very competitive, it was just about who executes what best or fastest. There wasn't much room for discussion or debate, much less long-term learning and growth. So in these situations, I've ended up feeling like I constantly need to prove my value, which is exhausting, and any sort of mistake or hiccup leads to blame. And it really created a culture where everyone gets everyone gets along until something goes wrong, and then it's everyone for themselves. Fingers started getting pointed, and it became the blame game. So the culture that that leadership created and the lack of trust fueled this underlying insecurity where everyone's on edge, including leadership, and everyone was primed to be defensive or on the attack. And in this culture, the leadership definitely leaned on its position and authority to quell anything that it threatened it, including different perspectives or approaches that it didn't understand. So that was disheartening from my perspective, and I didn't feel like it could bring up different ideas. It was just a toxic culture where I ended up feeling myself disengaged from the work because of it, even though, you know, in one example, it was a nonprofit and I believed in the work they were doing, but could feel myself disengage. I've also seen negative leadership be highly manipulative as well. There's one example that was particularly disturbing where communication or decisions were very strategically done and presented in a way that was, I was told it was in my best interest, even though they never asked, but it was clearly more about what was best for the company and kind of trying to maneuver me into a particular position or not give me a lot of time. And it was very gaslighting, definitely did not feel valued. Unfortunately, most of us have likely had negative experiences with people in leadership positions at some point in our careers. Power-hungry supervisors, ineffective managers, toxic bosses. I've had my share. Throughout my 20s, I learned more about how not to lead and the kinds of organizations I did not want to be part of than the other way around. Though difficult, they were important lessons. The most challenging for me was having a female boss who led through fear and distrust. She screamed at subordinates, and during one particularly difficult week, she fired three employees, seemingly out of the blue. She created a culture of fear where many coped by staying quiet, keeping heads down at their desks to fly under the radar to avoid her disapproval and anger. She seemed to embody the worst of top-down, dominant, ego-centered management that I had seen carried out by men, but it was particularly difficult seeing it in a fellow woman. Any opportunity to learn from her a different way to lead was lost. Luckily, I saw it modeled elsewhere in different ways. Referencing your kind of conventional leadership, thinking about masculine leadership characters that are assertive, dominant, competitive, authoritative, definitely make me aware of their title and position. I've seen so many leaders, particularly men, who have been in positions of power above me, who've used their positions, abuse them to really just sexual harassment and 
every single employment I've ever had probably since I was 15, 14 in restaurants and then in the corporate world and nonprofit. That's all I've ever seen. So I guess I always question leadership from a title-based perspective versus someone who actually is leading towards a better world that's claimed in the vision mission statements of the companies. To me, yeah, negative is caring about yourself and being very ego-led versus looking at the whole and seeing what's needed for the health and progress of the whole in service of the commitments that we make. Over the decades, some research has focused on the Queen Bee Syndrome a derogatory term coined in the 1970s to describe women who have reached senior positions, often in male-dominated organizations and industries, and who have distanced themselves from other women, often taking on traditionally masculine traits along their path to success. They are characterized as being more critical of female subordinates and as less likely to hire women or help other women rise through the ranks. While the term Queen Bee has been criticized by many for perpetuating gender-based stereotypes, some researchers have seen the validity in exploring this further by focusing less on individual personality traits and more on how workplaces affect behaviors. A study from the Netherlands points to the role of social identity threat and how it shapes women in sexist spaces. Researchers found that women who exhibited behaviors characterized as being a queen bee had experienced more gender discrimination along their paths. The social threat tied to their gender caused them to disengage from other women to prevent experiencing further discrimination and harm from gender bias. In essence, it's a coping mechanism born from the deep bias of workplace cultures that place higher value on men and where being a woman is seen as a detriment. Putting women in management positions is not enough. Workplaces need to change to support and champion women throughout their careers, giving them opportunities to find their unique voices and grow as leaders. That idea of leaning in is a major part of the problem that In Good Company is trying to address. All of the organizations within this partnership, all four of us, we're working with women. And aside from training and mentorship opportunities, this unfortunately also requires a level of preparing women and gender diverse people for what they will encounter and supporting them in building their skills to advocate for themselves and respond to the discrimination, unfortunately, all too likely to encounter. Uh, This is different from a lean-in mentality. To me, sounds an awful lot like placing the blame on those who decide to leave unwelcoming workplaces or fields with this kind of suggestion that they haven't tried hard enough to assert themselves. And we know it's an entirely unfair characterization of what goes on and that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, Black, racialized, and gender diverse people, they would have to lean in way farther than everybody else if that idea were to hold up. And that's an unfair burden to place on folks. So at IGC, we wanted to go to the businesses themselves and do those things we talked about, about a community of peers who are trying to create change in their workplaces and to support each other in the process. There are loads of good Jedi, that's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion practices that are out there. And we know that the field also happens to be dominated by racialized people. And that they very likely need the support of their peers to navigate the challenges that arise from doing Jedi work with colleagues who may not be that aware of their biases or the behaviors that they have that cause harm. So our role in this space is really to address this head on and hopefully support businesses in making the changes that we know are needed and that we know would make a difference for the women and gender diverse folks who are participating in the programs that we support.
with in good company, especially with the community of practice or the task force that we're looking to create with the, the small medium enterprise leaders. I think it's just this idea of being more open to do things differently. I think a lot of times we often ask for different ways of doing new ideas. How do we make sure that we're including this group of people? How would we make sure we're attracting this group of people? And you have all of these great ideas that are proposed, but people are really afraid of change. And I think if we want to shift kind of the onus or the responsibility from the people who are coming from these different groups to constantly have to move forward and start the conversation or initiate the conversation. I think workplaces just need to work on their culture and adopt a posture of change and not being afraid of it. Sometimes, especially in workplaces, we like the status quo. It's been done. It's how it's done. We're going to continue to do it. And I think if we're talking about bringing in different groups of people, then we have to expect that with that, there's going to be different ways of doing, different ways of learning, different ways of sharing, different ways of growing, different ways of wanting to be seen and wanting to be heard. But workplaces are shaped by the broader culture. A society that devalues women not only produces men who devalue women, but also permeates how women value women. The number of women who have risen to power extolling an agenda that is anti-woman is an example of the deep challenges that women still face in reaching full equality. Female Republican leaders in the U.S. run on a platform that seeks to control women's bodies and rail against social programs that help women and children stay out of poverty. Across Europe, women at the helm of right-wing parties with fascist roots push for policies that will further oppress women, particularly women of color, immigrants, and lesbian, bi, and trans women, putting them in greater economic precarity and physical danger. In her essay titled Women, the Kinder, Gentler Fascists? Naomi Wolf points to fascism's history of appealing to women, providing a sense of belonging and common purpose coupled with the ability to prey on a social condition called last place aversion that propels one subordinate group like women to outrank other oppressed groups has made women susceptible to fascist propaganda. The less women are valued within purportedly open, equal, and democratic societies, the more vulnerable they are to messaging that speaks to their oppression and singularly points the blame, not at power structures, but at other marginalized groups, and offers a stern hand to right the perceived wrongs. As Wolf explains, the reasons women are attracted to the far right should not just be condemned, but studied to understand the ways women are being left out. We should also examine the role of women leading these right-wing movements. Pushing women to act against their own best interests and those of others should not be ignored. We are now faced with a critical opportunity to redefine leadership and the role of women in shaping and modeling more feminine leadership that can help move us towards a more just and humane future. This discussion continues in the second part of this episode. And part two will further explore the aspects that define feminine leadership and the ways forward for a more balanced, wholehearted approach to leadership that will help us navigate an uncertain future. Keep listening or bookmark part two to come back to later. Thanks for listening. <laughs>